Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 45, High Fantasy Letters to the Penthouse Editor, where we will be looking at chapters 95 through 97 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the stages of infatuation. All right, before we get into this, I'm going to do something I almost never do, which is, now that I've read this section again, does that feel appropriate? This feels a lot more sinister to me, this whole section. feels a lot more sinister to me with the context of what happened to Kvothe and Tarbian and how he handles basically being mind controlled by Florian at the end that I'm not certain I love the kind of innocent connotations of stages of infatuation. But for me, like I made a note about coerced desire. Yeah, there is definitely a big conversation to be had around informed consent here. Yeah. So think on it while I go through my little spiel and we'll kind of adjust in real time. All right. Speaking of said little spiel, if you're new here, each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear. I say week every other week through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then share a Aristotelian for Nemos of the week picked out of the section that we read and share a recommended thing of the week or every other week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. We are still not going back to our normal format. And this week you can blame our cat. Yeah, he decided it might be fun to eat some string. And we thought also a metal hook on the end of said string. And by some string, I mean 18 inches of string on like a little cat fishing line. Um, Emergency vets are not fast nor inexpensive. But that's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, to finish this off, before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Da Books. And second, there will be spoilers. Also, I think with this episode, it is probably appropriate to include a content warning. There are discussions of sexual assault. So if this is something that is a sensitive topic or a trigger for you, We understand if you want to skip this episode. Absolutely. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, even if that means skipping this episode, one another, and to the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right. So if you're the type of person that skips through our little intro, content warning, sexual assault, understand if you can't be here. It's okay. We'll see you next time. Also... Just a heads up, I'm sure that if you've listened to us long enough, you already know this, but my perspective on this section is going to be a little bit different than a lot of people might be expecting for like normal conversations about this section. And by that, I mean, I'm asexual. I don't experience sexual attraction in the way that a lot of people experience it. I do experience romantic attraction. I'm not a romantic, but I am asexual. I'm kind of sex indifferent. I'm not repulsed. That can happen to anybody of any orientation. And I'm not like 
sex favorable in like I need to have it all the time or anything, but some aces are. I'm kind of just in that it's fine, whatever. And so my perspective on this section might be a little more analytical, might be a little less hot and bothered. I'm also going to try my best not to be at all judgy because I don't see any purpose in being that way. But I do want to bring some other perspectives besides, "Ah, that's hot. And for the record, I am allosexual, which means I do experience sexual attraction but I was also raised deeply religious, and so I have a whole lot of hang-ups that make it really difficult for me to discuss some of this openly. Which is funny, because I actually have no hang-ups that make me like, <laughs> unable to have conversations about this openly. Like I say, we're different people. <laughs> right. So, Will's going to be asked to be a little more vulnerable, and I'm going to be asked to be a little less, ew. Anyway, (laughs) let's go ahead and dive in here. So the more I'm thinking about it, maybe a better theme here would be consent. Yeah. Consent and power dynamics. Because I think the thing that really strikes me here is the big motivator, the big thing that drives most of the tension in these chapters is not strictly sexual allure or anything like that or attraction it is power and those dynamics of consent the way that power influences consent and the people's ability to give consent in this case it's very much magical mystical power there is an inherent thing that florian does to essentially cast a dominate person spell she's got a whammy right And I think that there's also some things to be said about Florian's own predicament, where for her, the only people who are ever around her or giving her any influence back and forth, whatever, the only reason that there is someone there ever is because she's manipulated them into being her sex slave. We also kind of get the sense that this is just the way she is, like on a biological level. Right. But I wonder what that does to someone psychologically when the only time that people are around you is because you've made them be around you. I think there's a real conversation to be had about that. And, you know, having that kind of power and without having essentially any kind of moral upbringing or any kind of need to consider consent or any context in which that sort of thing would be discussed. What does that do to a person? What kind of person does it make them into? If you've never had a conversation that says, hey, care about the person that you're going to be romantically and or physically involved with and make sure that they're all on board before you pursue this and you just kind of see everybody through a lens of, well, of course you want me or you're mine. You are a possession. You are a thing to be had. What does that do to someone? It's interesting. Kvothe describes Valurian as almost childlike in that nature. Like, as in she hasn't had the societal moral maturity. There hasn't been an opportunity for her to mature beyond that sort of childlike, I want a thing, a person, whatever, and so I have it. So anyway, we'll get into that when we come to those particular passages in these chapters here. But yeah, I think consent and power dynamics is probably a better lens. Okay. Would you write that down? 
Yeah, why don't I? And then we'll just re-record that. No, I want this whole conversation. Okay. All right, cool. Sounds good. I think that it's okay to have stated a thing and then go back on it because we've re-examined it. I want to encourage learning and adjusting and not being so stuck that you can't change. Well, let's go ahead and get into the chapters. We start with chapter 95, Chased. That's C-H-A-S-E-D, not C-H-A-S-T-E. <laughs> Keeping in theme. So there's all five of our intrepid heroes standing there across a clearing from a naked fae singing softly enough where it shouldn't be projected all the way to their ears. But let us remind ourselves she is fae and therefore... Little Miss Siren Song reaches all of the people who would potentially be attracted to her. Now, I find this whole section to be very heteronormative, and I kind of wonder if it would be different now, you know, given the time span between when it was written and now, and knowing what I've seen of Patrick Rothfuss's very accepting views. And, like, Hespa, to me, reads, like, very straight. Very much, she is very straight, and she very much has her sight set on Dedan. In a way that this is, again, I don't think a very healthy relationship between the two of them, and that's where I'm going to leave that. So I'm not the biggest fan, but I understand where the comedy should be in, nope, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, Hespa and Dedan have kind of a honeymooners dynamic, which was very funny at the time, and then as you look back on it, it seems incredibly problematic. I mean, if you take too much time to look at it, I mean, I realize they're fictional characters, and if you find it funny, you find it funny, and if you think it's cute, you think it's cute. We have the curse of overanalyzing everything. It's kind of our brand. So, which we did before the podcast, which is why we did the podcast. But I don't particularly care for... Dan just going off and like running forward. I also don't like his choice of swear word. Again, heteronormative, and I think it would be different now. But did you take the time to figure out what the song she's singing is or to look it up? I did not look it up specifically. However, I did notice a couple things. And they start in this song and they carry throughout all of her dialogue. That is specifically that all of her dialogue is lowercased with the exception of her own name. Or I. So only when she is speaking of herself does she actually capitalize. I've also noticed it doesn't matter if there's periods or not. It is all lowercase. Which is interesting because I've only ever listened to the book before now. And so just to read that, I'm not sure if it's somewhat submissive sounding or if it's just lyrical sounding. I actually have a theory on this. Look at you having theories. So... Going back earlier, we talked about how Florian is almost childlike in that whatever Florian wants, Florian gets, and Florian never thinks any further than what she wants. And so within her own world, within the world of Florian, within the mind of Florian, it's inconceivable to put anything other than Florian in that sort of uppercase subjective important capitalized sense so felurian's world revolves around felurian and her desires 
Everything else is completely secondary, lowercase. So Felurian does not ever put herself in a position where she capitalizes somebody else. She does not speak a name with importance. She never calls Kvoth by his name. She refers to him as her poet, her poet. Other people exist in her mind only in relation to her and in no other capacity. And so I think that deliberate lowercase really just speaks to the way she views the world, the way the world is presented to her. Part of that is just by her very nature. It's not healthy. It's not seductive. It's not anything. It's actually kind of damaging to her because she has this fundamentally childlike perception of the world. Also very possessive. Yeah. Everything exists to be hers. She doesn't think of agency for other people or the world around her. The natural world or anything like that doesn't really play into it. She is fundamentally selfish. And I think that's where all of that lower casing is. It is making that all subservient to her. It's putting herself at the primary center of everything. I actually went back and found when Dedan said the same string of not sure poetry or music or lyrics. Right. He capitalizes. It is the same. The melody was eerie, compelling, and utterly unfamiliar. I didn't recognize the language either. Not one bit of it. I can't put a bit of sense to those words, but they struck right in my head, even though he only sang it once. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting thing to point out. I think the other interesting thing to point out is that there is a word in here that starts off with rue. Atunia vorulan. Because edema rue. We also have two alar and d. Alar in there so you know you wonder if that maybe means something to do with will there's also the word losi or loci which is very similar to the name of the person who works at the little inn nearby i think i pointed that out the last time so we have the little funny section with dedan getting stopped by hespa but we also have martin no, 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 which is absolutely no surprise considering how he reacts to magic and how absolutely traumatizing this whole adventure has been for this poor guy. Yeah, I mean, he really has been a traditional heroic fantasy type, and now he's been forced into a high fantasy world, and it just is not what he signed up for. It's not what he wants. He doesn't like this. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's Tempe, who comes from a society where sex is not taboo, but singing is, music is. But also, this kind of forced seduction seems like a perversion of the consensual, straightforward sex that his society is built around. Tempe does not seem to be very much controlled by this. Like, he, he seems to be viewing all of this fairly impassively. But he's also not excited or alert. Right. He seems unfazed. And then Kvothe actually does find himself thinking of Loci at the Penny's Worth and thinks about 
all of the attraction that he had toward her, physical attraction, and Florian sang and essentially Siren songed him off into the woods. In addition to the physical lust and attraction, the thing that, that strikes me that really gets Quoth motivated here is one, he's motivated because he wants to live an epic story and he figures this is what you have to do. This is part and parcel of that. When the opportunity comes, you say yes. And then there's also this part where he's like, like, I gather stories, I experience stories, of course I'm going to go. And then there's also sort of this, well, this is forbidden knowledge, and what do I do? I, I seek out forbidden knowledge because I'm an arcanist, I'm a mage. And he refers to himself as a namer, even though he's really only been able to do it once and not really on command. And you get the sense that this is, you know, for someone who is constantly looking for these supernatural interactions you know he's someone who let's not forget went to the university mostly to chase the chandrian here is an opportunity to sit down with a, a creature who is older than time he's gonna say yes the other thing that i know is that he's allured because it's musical and there is no other direct path to Foth's heart stronger than the pull of music yep and <laughs> Little upstart can't help himself. He has to tell us all. Has to. Oh, I could have said no if I wanted to. <laughs> the pull was very strong, but not so overpoweringly strong that I couldn't have said no. Well, I mean, granted, Martin said no. Tempe said no. The Dan was forced to say no again with that whole forced. <sighs> I mean, I'd say something, something toxic monogamy, something, something. Because, like, pretty much any relationship style can be toxic. And in this particular case, there is this thought that Hespa feels like she owns him, almost. Which I think is Uki. But, ugh. anyway. So, we get this kind of pattering snowball going down the hill, creating an avalanche from I'm in control, I'm in control, to, like, tumbling down a hill having sex. Yeah. And that's when it turns into sort of this dear editor. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't need to go over each and every little thing in this particular section. I just, I don't, that's, I'm not doing ew. It's just more like that has a very, to me, it, it's not what I'm looking for when I'm trying to read about relationships and even sexual relationships. Like that's not something that is, hitting the chords I would like. It's very physical. It's very possessive again sounding, like both of them. There's some things that are a little bit eh to me that are like putting his hand on the back of her neck. And I've seen too many instances of people being very possessive by just like putting their hand on the back of your neck. Like it's a control point. And I do find depictions of sweet things between two people or more people to be hot or sexy or whatnot. I mean, one of my favorite TV shows ever has been Sense8, and that, that show is full of sex. Oh, yeah. And when sex is something that is consented to and loving and tender and whatnot, even, even when sex is not that way, when it's presented, though, as something consensual and is presented as something that both parties are enjoying, 
and is not presented as selfish. I like it. It's fine. Like, I'm okay with that. You know, like, it doesn't leave me with that weird little, like, ugh. This description strikes me very much as... <sighs> it's pound cake. Yeah. <laughs> Hugh Van Halen. <laughs> it, it's a mix of Kvothe's normal, of course I'm good at everything on the first time that I try it. Sure you are, kid. And of course I, I can't say the word I want to use and still keep this non-explicit. <laughs> but of course I was able to give Valorian a lot of pleasure. Yes. It kind of has this, on my first time, I was already the world's greatest lover. Right. That kind <laughs> of thing. And I'm just like, kid, you're 16. Yeah. And a lot of this, like I say, is probably also a function of Kvothe, our unreliable narrator, perhaps burnishing his reputation more than is truly justified. Or he really thought that. He might have really thought that. He probably did. And that's the thing I'm saying is like, this is striking me as a very selfish, very inexperienced, very young interpretation of something that I don't find as interesting or as hot, I guess, the, uh, alluring or like, it's hard to explain as someone who doesn't experience attraction that way, but like is perfectly okay with the acts themselves and like sometimes actually derives pleasure out of descriptions of the acts themselves. Not exactly the same, but like if you've read Heartstopper, spoilers for Heartstopper, the slow, sweet, steady relationship building between the boys and that is, it's so loving and sweet. And when they have their first kiss, you're just like, oh. And when they decide that they're ready, you're like cheering them on. And it's, you know, in this case, they are still teenagers. So it's not like I'm getting any particular pleasure that way out of it. I'm getting an emotional like, oh, it's really cute out of it. But there are definitely some times when you can have sweet, romantic, consensual relationships that the description when they become sexual or whatnot doesn't weird me out. But in this case, like this, this isn't that. I think part of it is like, so if I think back to the sorts of sex scenes that really bother me versus the ones that don't, when the narrative is in the first person, it comes across as almost braggadocio. Like it is the difference between being witness to and then someone telling you all about it. It feels like locker room talk because like, let's remember, this is Quoth sitting in a bar telling this story to Chronicler and Bast. He's not going to necessarily tell about how attentive of a lover he actually is other than in, in a way that is meant to be, look, I'm amazing. I think really to me it's voyeuristic yeah even though one of the parties was in the discussion like was the one telling the story and i think that actually might be even worse again it's the difference between two people showing their sexuality to the camera deliberately versus one person telling an audience about this without any conversation with the other person again it's that letter to the editor from penthouse it's a little prurient and smutty 
and I, I mean that not in the pejorative sense, but just like that sense that you are going to tell someone about just how wild my own experiences are and how awesome I am. There's an element of a brag to it that maybe isn't earned. Yeah, I think that that's actually what's bothering me more than anything. Because if that's part of a relationship style that you absolutely adore and that, you know, it's something that is loving and caring and a mark of how you feel towards your partner, I like it. And also, like, there's no shame whatsoever at all in anything to do with kink. There is absolutely no shame whatsoever from me on anybody that doesn't particularly want to have sex with someone that they are romantically attracted to and would just like to go have one night stands or just have like a friends with benefits or a play pal or whatever. Like I, I don't, I don't have any judgment against that. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that I just don't like this particular way that this is particularly presented. Yeah, like I say, I am someone who enjoys having sexual rapport with my partners. I really appreciate that as a part of a romantic relationship. I also don't like to talk about it with other people. Like, that is not for discussion with outside parties. That's your particular way of dealing with things. And that's perfectly fine to me, too. Feeling like it's a privacy thing. I don't typically mind the idea of people talking about things to do with sex or their own particular sexual experiences. It's more in this particular case, it just felt flat to me. That's fair. There's enough detail where it sounds like Quoth is bragging and not enough detail where it sounds like they both had fun. So let's move on from this because I do think there's more to talk about on this as we move further into the text. So in chapter 96, the fire itself, it's just a two-hander, so to speak. But um bum Between Quoth and Felurian. It starts with Quoth basically in the afterglow here. You know, he's had his first sexual encounter that we know of. First one where he's consented, probably, sort of, or enjoyed, maybe not consented to, but maybe enjoyed. That's fair. Because, again, that can sometimes happen. It's complicated, and I think this is actually a, a section that represents Quoth piecing that together and trying to separate out those elements that separates enjoyed from consented to. You can enjoy things that you don't consent to, and that doesn't make it okay. You can have a physical reaction to something that you didn't consent to, and that doesn't mean that you retroactively consented. It's a messy thing to figure out, and I think this is a part that actually sees Quoth putting those two together. And it's very difficult when, you know, if we think about in pop culture and stories and everything, the idea that someone could enjoy something that they didn't consent to and that that consent would actually be the thing that determines whether the act was moral or immoral is not something that is strictly discussed all that often. I don't think it's examined very much. And I think that the reason that I am viewing this through a more sinister lens than maybe even then that's warranted, but like rather than looking at it and going, he got to have a really special time with a creature of the Fae. Again, we're not even humanizing her. 
And by humanizing, I mean like treating her as a person. We're just treating her as an object, as a member of the Fae, as something magical, mystical, and not altogether giving her personhood. I think actually that's something that we see Quoth slowly doing. As we see Quoth work through this, we see that he's having to pull himself back from just his base carnal instincts. He's having a very hard time separating himself from those. And when he's finally able to do so, he actually starts to regard her with a little bit of pity because he recognizes that she's never had to deal with the fact that someone could say no to her. She's never had to actually live with someone who didn't just bore her and that she would then just be able to discard. And, you know, she lives alone in the woods. The pickings are slim, just purely demographically here. So Quoth wakes with something that's brushing at the edges of his memory. There's a couple of references to a distant thought began to nag at me, but I brushed it away like an irritating fly or something tried to kind of encroach on my thoughts so that I would stop focusing on just how much I wanted to be around this most beautiful person in the world, status, beautiful, naked person who is activating all of my hormonal everything to just want to ignore my responsibilities, all of my life besides this one act that we can do or multiple acts, depending. I mean, she is Florian. In theory, she has a library of things to suggest that they do. And I think after this section, after we've got through the parts where Quoth feels coerced into this relationship, this sexual relationship, once he's making his own decisions to continue it, it doesn't feel as gross to me. But this, this chapter puts context into why he is so put off by being manipulated into this. And it's something that he has to work through. It's not something that he just automatically figures out. He has to do some reasoning. He has to give himself time and space to pull back a bit. And that's difficult. So Quoth waking up with that little nagging feeling. I'm not sure if we're meant to see that nagging feeling as, oh, hey, remember Denna exists? Or, oh, this seems like wrong. Like I'm being lured to my death wrong. Like there's no coming back from this wrong. I'm being controlled by my deck wrong. And he tries and fails to enter into the heart of stone. He's so distracted by his hormonal and baser instincts. The fact that there is this lovely naked woman next to him who by all accounts just wants him. And he can't focus back into that flow state, that heart of stone state. He says, for the first time in my life, and I beg to differ, because I swear, somewhere in the last 1600-ish pages, I'm going to guess, he has failed to do this, including when he first tried. Almost certainly. I think he did fail a few times trying with Dabinthi. I think you're right. I think what we're seeing here is Kvoth, who is at this stage, used to being able to control his mind to make it do what he wants, suddenly is faltering in this. And that's really disturbing to him. 
him losing his own control. Like I have an anxiety disorder. I feel like I need to have control over a lot of my environment. I feel more comfortable when I have the choice and have the control over a lot of things. And to give up that control is a very big vulnerable thing for me and requires a lot of consent, a lot of discussion, a lot of whatever. And right now he is being coerced, whether willfully or just because of biology from Fullerian. I'm not sure. Like, I don't know if there's an intent behind it, but he can't bring himself back down into that state right now. And we do know that Kvothe does have anxiety. Chances are he has PTSD from you name it. And I think one of the things that makes people resonate with these stories and why people are so excited for the conclusion is because Kvothe, heroic as he may seem, as fantastical as he may seem, the thing that really grounds him is that he is fundamentally someone who deals with mental illness, that he is mortal, that he is actually an anti-hero who struggles, who makes flawed decisions, who is not always in control of what he wants to do and is sometimes driven by these inner demons which are much more mundane. He is like those of us in the contemporary world who are oftentimes at war with our own minds. And his real victories are when he's able to take control of those. Those represent moments of triumph when he's able to master his mind more than anything else. And I think, you know, a lot of us, if we were to think about what would be a real superpower that would help us get through the day, get through our lives, it would be that. If we think about a little bit of fantastical wish fulfillment, that more than anything else would be the ultimate power fantasy. To not be at the mercy of our mental illnesses, our neuroses, our inner demons. And so to see Kvothe here really finding himself at the mercy of some outside force in that sort of fight, that's really what I think makes these stories resonant. You know, Kvothe is broken and he has been broken pretty much from the start. And I think that part of why he is so intent on bragging, on saying how he successfully overcame something or how he is the best at something is his way of saying, no, I'm not broken. This is normal or I am still the best. It is, I think, his way of asserting his narrative over things, asserting control over his narrative. And so he even thinks to himself, how do most of the people that get into this situation that I am currently in die because that is what he is trained to believe will always happen when you are faced with Fulorian and he is also determined to not have this fate. He's like, well, there is the possibility that it's from extreme physical stress, like their hearts gave out, but I'm not going to be succumbing to that. I'm young, I'm fit, I'm lithe, I'm in a much better shape than any of those forkers. He could remember four stories where men had come back from the Fae. Only four. And he's a Demaru, so he knows all the stories. Right. And then three of them were pretty much just cracked from the beginning and died within weeks. And then one made it all of six months. 
And he's just like, but that's not going to be me. That's absolutely not going to be me. Like the way that he's presenting this is just like, ah, you're insufferable. So, yeah, we've got at least a page of both kind of having this internal dialogue, this, okay, well, maybe I am just insane. And maybe I didn't know it. Nah. <laughs> and then watching Florian. The longer that he was in this situation, the closer he can get to that flow state, that heart of stone state. He's starting to calm down. He's starting to take in the space that he's in, the situation that he's in. And also still saying things like, if not for the training I'd received at the university, I would have been a broken, pitiful thing, only able to concentrate on my own captivation. Because he is looking at this very lovely, very alluring fae who exists pretty much to arouse men. Again, I don't know that her existence itself is a very happy one. He starts composing songs to her because he can't not do that. That's how his brain works and that's how her powers are affecting him. He is being mind controlled, but he's insistent that he's not. And it's an interesting thing to read. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that none of us have had, you know, these crazy supernatural encounters, but many of us have been in relationships where the sex was great, but everything else really wasn't. There's a concept of new relationship energy where it's also that honeymoon phase, I guess, is what a lot of people call it where you become very infatuated very quickly with someone. You feel like you're on top of the world whenever you're with them. You don't have to worry about any of the other things in your life that are going on. None of the responsibilities matter. None of the outside of this relationship matters. None of the things that are day-to-day -day grinds matter. It's just this person and my relationship to them. It's just making it through the day so that I can see this person. It is lighting up when you get to see the person. It is this excitement, this beautiful thing between the two of you. And when something like a responsibility of maybe you have a pet and they need to go out for a walk and you're just like, Neh. and you start to get resentful of the things that interrupt the space that you want to be in. It can happen actually like, if you have a project that you want to work on that's just all-consuming and making you just want to go do that rather than your normal day-to-day -day work. Or let's say you're out of laundry and you just really don't want to have to spend the time doing that because you would rather have this time spent on this new relationship with whatever or whoever. There is a definite immediate infatuation draw obsession. I remember when we first started going out, actually, I clearly remember this. My supervisor took me aside. It was like maybe about a week or two after we'd really started going out in earnest. And he goes, hey, Will, is everything okay? You've, you've been a little bit off. You know, things that you normally would, you know, really prioritize. You've been kind of letting slide. I, I just noticed that. Are, are you okay? Is something different in your life? And, you know, I was like, well, I did start dating someone and they're really awesome and I really like them. He goes, oh, OK, well, that that explains it. Yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, It's just like it's like, 
okay, yeah, that, that totally makes sense, you know, and <laughs> but it was just like, yeah, okay, yeah, certain things that were more important earlier just weren't as important. I was not putting as much emphasis on those parts of my life. And when my boss found out that it was because I was getting involved with someone that I really liked, you know, his response was not actually one of concern. It was more like, okay, well, that's, that's actually good. That's you doing something that's important for you. It's not just you're struggling with something. <laughs> and I think it's more apparent in people who are neurodivergent than even with the people who are neurotypical. Neurotypical people still have this. Like, it is definitely a, oh my goodness, there is this new, exciting part of my life that I can't just let go. And I've had this obsessing over new love. I've had this when I've been at workplaces and I have a new idea for something I want to draw and I just can't let go of it and I can't stop. And I resent any pull away from that. When I am in the middle of a project that I desperately want to finish and I get pulled away from it, it's this eh. And I think that that's, that's something that is being illustrated here. It's not unusual because when you're in that first part of a, a new relationship, there's a lot of things that feel really good. And anything that feels less than that is not good. <laughs> Also, anything between the two of you that feels less than good is easy to ignore, which is where we come to both expressing his lyrical senses outwardly towards her and her interpreting it as poetry. Yeah, and she calls him a poet, and for once, Quoth does not just get into indignation. Right, he doesn't wrinkle his nose and go, ew. How dare you accuse me of poetry? But this is because he's infatuated with her. He's so obsessed and so into her that anything that she says sounds like music, sounds loving, sounds like something that he wants because he can't draw himself away long enough to examine his own feelings. At least not yet. At least not yet. This is going to happen rapidly, though. So Quoth tells us something that I think is very interesting. She came closer, moving her hands and knees through the pillows. You looked like a poet, fiery and fair. Her voice was no louder than a breath as she cupped my face with her hands. Poets are gentler. They say nice things. There was only one person I'd ever heard whose voice was similar to this. Elodin. On rare occasions, his voice would fill the air as if the world itself were listening. Leading credence to the idea that Elodin is at least partially Fae. Also, it lends itself a little bit to that childlike element. The world is at his fingertips when he's in his full power. And that is not the experience that most of us have of the world. We are mostly at the mercy of the world, whether that's through finance or professional life or relationships, most of us have to make compromises. Most of us have to submit to higher powers. And so these people who have never had to contemplate something not going the way they want it to, there's an element of childishness to it. After this conversation about poetry, Florian's eyes rest on 
Foth's loot case. She recognizes it and basically wants Foth to play songs for her. And Foth has to think about what song should I sing for the most beautiful, most fantastical, most experienced, I guess, person, lover, creature, fae. What do I sing to this person? I think he does hit on something that is actually probably pretty insightful. And that is that Valurian does not have experience of the day-to-day life. She doesn't know what it's like to be common people. To quote Jarvis Cocker, she'll never do what common people do. She'll never fail like common people. She'll never watch her life slide out of view and dance and drink and screw because there's nothing else to do. That was from Pulp. Great band. So Quoth's decision is, okay, I'm going to sing you common pub songs. You know, these are going to be songs that are about people arguing over trivial things. They're going to be songs that people just sing for fun. Like there's not going to be any pretense of high art or anything like that. There's not going to be any grand romances. There's not going to be anything more than these are songs that people sing for fun. And Florian laughs and applauds and her face is full of pure joy. And then she rewards him. See, this, this I think is really cute. She rewards him every time that he plays a song she likes with a cute little kiss. I think that that's sweet. I think that that's cute. What Quoth says is, I'd come to realize rather quickly that I preferred kisses to coin. Which I think is also playing into that honeymoon phase, new relationship kind of energy. Where you can ignore all of the things that are piling up around you to get the one thing you want. Yeah, I can definitely see a scenario where I would prefer kisses to coins, but kisses aren't going to pay my mortgage. That's unfortunate, and I wish that there were a way (laughs) to not have to rely on money. Yes. And it's also as he starts to consider what would Valurian's life be like? What is it like to be this person? And he starts to think of Valurian not as this temptress who goes out of her way to kill people, to slake her own lust. It's what is her life like that this is what she has to have or what she does. And he starts thinking, wow, she's probably terribly lonely because her only companionship is these people that she's able to ensnare with a siren song. And she's out in the middle of nowhere, and as we said earlier, the pickings are slim. And also, Kvoth is more likely to think of himself as something special, as someone special. And so by doing that, he has to, at least thinks he has to, put down anyone else that would be a challenge to him. The other thing to remember is that even if we take Kvoth at his word, that he will somehow last longer or whatever, Valurian is immortal. That means that no matter what, no matter how good Kvoth is as a lover, as a companion, whatever, he will die. Like that is his lot in life. He will grow old and die at some point. So even if he lasts longer than her other companions, than her other conquests. And we're saying before he goes insane. Right. For whatever reason. 
even if he lasts longer for her that's just a blink of the eye like for her lasting three months is not functionally different from lasting a day no matter what her lovers are novelty right that's all she ever has and she discards them when she's bored with them or when they can no longer function and yeah the fact is it's this discarding that is what drives people mad not the act of being with her itself and that would be extremely sad that would be extremely lonely that you know you couldn't actually form a lasting attachment with another person because they would they would basically hollow out and die and so quoth gets to a point where he's no longer in the mood to sing in the mood to make music and he stops and in a moment of clarity he's like i have to leave I have to go back to be with my friends. I have to go back to my life, to my responsibilities, to my other people. I can't just languish here. I need to be back to my life. And Florian exerts her power again. She prevents him from leaving. She re-ups her cast on Dominate Person. And a part of Quoth's mind knows that he will never be allowed to leave her. No one is allowed to leave her unless she chooses. I was powerless. I was a novelty. I was a toy. And that, I think, is where my point of this being problematic comes in. He doesn't actually have a choice. He doesn't have the ability to consent for real. It's being overpowered by your hormones is very similar to being influenced by alcohol or a drug and appearing to consent while being influenced by something that takes away your inhibitions. And Florian has all of these supernatural powers that Quoth doesn't have. There isn't a relationship between equals. Fundamentally, like Quoth can never be a partner to her. Quoth will only ever be a plaything for her. And as pleasurable as that play might be for him, he does not get a say in when it starts or stops. On top of that, we as a society tend to downplay sexual assault towards men, whether that's a woman sexually assaulting a man or another man sexually assaulting a man, whether it's within a relationship or not. Like, we tend to think of men as being more powerful, as being more capable of being able to stop this from happening to them, to not being able to perform for better lack of words unless they are enthusiastically consenting. None of that's true. Men can be assaulted. And it is incumbent on us to also be just as compassionate for men who are assaulted as we are for women who are assaulted. Yeah. And I think what Patrick Rothfuss is also doing here is pointing out that consent isn't just someone verbally said yes. It's they have to be in a mindset where they are capable of saying no if they so choose. Also, you can withdraw consent. Yep. Like we get the sense that Quoth probably was consenting at the very first, but at this point he's trying to withdraw his consent because he is being told that he doesn't have a choice. And that is where it becomes coercive, where it becomes manipulative, where it becomes something that is forced, that it is something that is coerced and bad. 
So it is now implied that it has either been one instance of this happening or multiple instances of this happening where Quoth's control is being taken away from him. And there is the part of him that is Quoth that is raging, but he still feels his body reacting to her presence, to her wants. It's almost like he's split in the way that he splits when he's doing sympathy. He can split his mind apart, except in this case, you've got his actual conscious consenting self or able to consent self in its own little bubble where it can't revoke consent and his body doing whatever she wants it to. And I think the other fundamental thing here is that this is a split that he did not choose. He didn't choose to split his mind off into multiple pieces here. His mind was split off by Felurian. And as Felurian comes to caress his face, to touch him, to incite a sexual response, something broke inside of his mind and flashed him back to four years earlier. You know, we have basically this untold story of his time in Tarbian up to this point. And this isn't a tale of scrappy young Kvothe hanging on by his bootstraps and through wit and cleverness triumphing over the odds and using trickery to get his way. This is a much less triumphal story. This is a story of Kvothe powerless and being assaulted by other street kids. Now, this section, this flashback, is not explicit, but it's heavily implied that Kvothe was sexually abused, was sexually assaulted. I'm not sure that I wanted it to be more explicit, and I'm not sure that I didn't. It, wanting is the wrong word, but like, the social responsibility part of my brain says that it would have more power, more of an impact, if it had been more direct and explicit. But there's a part of me that says that as an author, Patrick Rothfuss didn't need to say any more than he said. In some ways, it protects people who just don't need to see that in their stories. And in some ways, it might be what needed to be edited down to be able to publish his story. There are a lot of stigmas. There are a lot of people who will tell you that men can't be sexually assaulted, that boys can't be sexually assaulted, or that it doesn't happen often enough where we should have that represented in the things we read or in fiction that we read. And, you know, there's some other bits here that speak to the way a lot of victims of sexual assault feel, like this idea that they can't call out for help, that at best they will be ignored, and at worst it'll be responded to by someone who will only compound matters. Oftentimes going to the authorities results in only more trauma for the survivors of assault. And in this retelling, we get more of a description of how he bit people's fingers off, how he broke people's legs or used a rock to smash in his skull. And we get absolutely nothing saying that he was explicitly, I don't even want to say the word, because he is a character that I care about. He's fictional, but it's still hard. So the thing that I see in this is that Kvothe is someone who prizes his own agency more than anything else. And, you know, this is his mind making sense of things. And 
whether that's literally what happened or not, is actually not the point. This is the story he has to tell himself about that time to move forward and not allow that to define him. This is the story that he tells, whether it's true or not. It's what helps him come to some understanding of why what's going on in this current moment is wrong for him. I think true is the wrong word. I think complete. Yeah. These are the things that he has seized upon. He does not want his narrative to be as a victim. His narrative is someone who is a survivor. I know from my own experience that details of traumatic events disappear. I don't remember a lot of the details, just the feelings and emotions that are left at the end. And so I can see why he might have blacked it out. I can see why he wouldn't have, in his telling this to Chronicler and Bast, made it explicit. And again, I can see why Patrick Rothfuss wouldn't explicitly say the words. And in a lot of ways, I know I've talked about the game Gone Home. Spoilers for Gone Home. It is 13 years old now. If you haven't played it, go play it. Seriously, just play it. But there is a, goodness, a section where you enter a basement where the character's father had been assaulted as a young kid by an older uncle. And the clues are there for those that can see it, but not everyone's going to see that and know what it means. And I think that that's the same way that this reads. If you read between Quoth's lines, you know what happened, but it is very easy not to see it. And I think that that's maybe done on purpose. It's kind of, if you know, you know. I think it's also something that makes Quoth as our protagonist more relatable. He has survived things that all too many people in our world have. And he isn't always coming out victorious. He's not always someone who's had the power to change things the way he would want to. We know what it's like to be powerless in the face of circumstance, in the face of other people. And all too many of us have known what it's like to have our agency stripped from us like this. And it's a section where he actually makes the connection that even though what he's experiencing with Valurian is far less violent on the surface. And supposedly much more pleasurable. Like, if he told someone that this was an assault, that his time with Florian was an assault against him, they'd all look at him like he was nuts. How could you say that about this beautiful person that everyone wants to have sex with? Choosing you. How could you say that's an assault? And it is. Yeah. And he makes this connection. His agency is stripped away. He doesn't have the ability to withdraw consent yet. And as far as she's concerned, this is how it should be. She has the right to do this. She was of the faith. She did not worry over right or wrong. She was a creature of pure desire, much like a child. A child does not concern itself with consequences. Neither does a sudden storm. She was ancient and innocent and powerful and proud. That's a dangerous combination. And so 
he snaps back to his own mind. There is a question here that I think is interesting, but maybe in a weird place to contemplate and process. Was this the way Elodin saw the world? I think to an extent, yeah. Elodin, I mean, remember, Elodin has no qualms about going into the rooms of a rival professor and setting them on fire because he wants to. Like, that's the sort of transgression that most adults would draw a line at. Elodin, as whimsical as he might be, also has this childish element to him. Impulsive. Yeah. I'm going to say impulsive over the word childish because I don't like the connotation. I mean, yeah, there's childish versus childlike. Childlike is more innocent. Childish is more... Petulant? Yes. And we get a couple of pages of Foth really seeing into Florian, seeing what her psyche is more about, what her life is, what she is. And then she keeps trying to dominate him, keeps trying to fight this awakening in him, to subdue him, to make him submissive. And it's okay if you are a submissive person and if you enjoy that kind of thing. No kink shaming. If that's your dynamic, cool. But it implies consent. And Florian does not fundamentally understand. In her world, it's just not something that happens. She wants something and then people give it to her. And she does not think about whether it is right or wrong or whether they are able to choose this of their own free will. That doesn't concern her. At this point, she's almost an elemental force. There are things that Quoth says that show that her power uses her allure to try to control those she's around. But it's also very sinister and very dark. I felt her power thrumming in the air. Desire rose around me like a sea in storm. She raised her hand and touched my chest, and I shook. He's able to sing notes that stop her briefly. He sees her as a musical score, and he's able to, I think in this case, call her name. I think her name is those four musical notes. That's how I read it too. Or at least part of her name. Enough of her name that it puts them at least temporarily on an equal footing where he has the ability to say, no, I do not consent. And then he calls the wind to help him keep her away from him. This is kind of the second awakening of his sleeping mind. He calls the wind and he calls Felurian, understanding both of them completely in this instant. In this moment, but only in this moment. He finds that he now has power over her, and he could choose to use it in an equally sinister way. He could kill her to escape her, but he doesn't want to, or he can't bring himself to, or both. I think part of it is that when we think about someone who is acting as a hero in a moment, it is not just the having of power, but also having the quality of mercy. He realizes in this moment, yes, he does have, at this moment, power over Felurian. He also knows that in this time that he has come to gain power over her, it has been not through domination or force of will or anything like that. It has been in coming to understand her and to empathize with her. And 
his power isn't pure force. It is understanding. The thought of killing her sickened him. I was reminded of ripping the wings from a butterfly. Killing her would be destroying something strange and wonderful. A world without Florian was a poorer world. A world I would like a little less. It would be like breaking Ilian's loot. It would be like burning down a library in addition to ending a life. So we have him understanding that a world without her would be lesser. There's also a statement in here that a world without Kvothe would also be lesser. That I think is so powerful and I think is necessary for a lot of people to hear. A world without you, the individual listening to my voice, is lesser. I think also what we're seeing here is Kvothe doesn't use his power to gain control or subjugation or destruction, but rather to assert that he is just as of value as this other person who has hurt him. He doesn't say that they cease to have value. He doesn't say that they deserve to be destroyed. He says, I deserve to live. They deserve to live. I deserve to be me and they deserve to be them. Right. And, you know, this is also a learning experience for Felurian. Like Felurian up to this point hasn't been able to conceive of the concept of right or wrong in terms of any of this stuff. She's never, as far as we know, had any sort of concept of consent or what it might mean to actually have a partner. She also hasn't been challenged in a way that she can't overcome. Right. You know, I mean, partnerships are a challenge and they represent a challenge because when you're living by yourself and you don't have any relationships, you aren't constrained by what other people want. You can make your choices for yourself. You don't have to consider other people no more than you would want to. And when you enter into a partnership with someone, you have to think as much about them as you do about yourself. And it requires you to place as much value on them as you do on yourself. And it requires you to make compromises that you otherwise might not have to make. And Valurian has never had a partner. Valurian has never actually even truly had a companion. Valurian has only ever had toys. And while toys can be fun in the moment, they're ultimately things to be discarded. Toys will never challenge you. Toys will never ask you to reconsider your actions or your values. Toys will never tell you no. And having someone tell her no for the first time in her life is transformative. It interests me a lot, though. After Quoth releases her, after he asks the wind to leave her alone, I made a tearing motion and the silver flame that once held my breath became three notes of broken song and went to play among the trees. After this, her eyes flashed from fear to caution to curiosity. It's that curiosity of this is new. This is now new and novel in a way that a forced sexual connection has not been new or novel. And after he lets go of this, then he began to feel a fading, a forgetting. He could not remember the name of the wind. And he looks around and he sees nothing but empty air. He felt like a lute whose strings were cut. 
his heart clenched with a loss that he hadn't felt since his parents' death. He's letting go of all of these safeguards, all of these things that have been protecting him from traumatic past events, from currently traumatic events, experiences that he has to say no to in order to remain himself and protecting himself. He wants to hold on to this feeling of power, but he can't. And it's like trying to hold on to a handful of sand. The harder he tries, the more escapes his grasp. And he pretty much just collapses. It's a moment of vulnerability. I mean, mercy is not something that comes without cost. It requires some vulnerability. It requires putting yourself into a position where you could once again be hurt. That's what makes it so difficult. That's what makes it so valuable. One of the other things, I guess this is more narrative focused than maybe what we've been talking about. I just kind of wanted to bring people's attention to the butterfly imagery. We'll see more of butterfly imagery as we approach the Cathay. And I kind of wonder if the Cathay is just a counterpoint to Valorian. In many ways. So like butterflies fly in these seemingly chaotic patterns. Like they don't go in straight lines. They kind of loop and flutter and in ways that are non-deterministic. And at the same time, we have the whole proverb of a butterfly flapping its wings causes a windstorm on the other side of the world. This notion that they are aloft on forces that we can't fully understand. And at the same time, in all sorts of complex ways, impacting causality in drastic ways. They represent potential in this case. And so whereas Felurian is nurturing these butterflies, encouraging them to flap their wings, the Cathay is ending these possibilities by each butterfly that it devours, that it destroys, represents a potentiality that is cut off that ceases to be. So I'm interested by the way the butterflies function in this. So in this case, the mention of butterflies is specifically talking about her eyelids while she's sleeping. And it's also, Quoth talks about, it would be like pulling the wings off of a butterfly. Valurian is herself a butterfly whose wings are altering the shape of the world imperceptibly. And Quoth does not want to cut off these potential avenues. Well, that's the end of the section. I know it was a long one. It was longer for us because I'm staring at a thing that says that we've been recording for one hour and 52 minutes at this particular moment. And I know that that's not how long it's going to wind up being because there were a lot of pauses and I took a lot of it out. But that's how long we've been talking about this. So now it really feels like time to move on. You have the Phronimos this week. Who'd you pick? Uh, this was not a very... I didn't have a lot of choices. You really didn't. I had like a line about Tempe and like a line about Martin and Espa and Dan. So it kind of has to be like a mix between, I'd say, Martin and Tempe just together. Because although Martin's motivation is more about fear, neither one of them succumbed to Florian's song of their own free will. Dedan does not fall into this because Dedan was 
forcibly prevented. And I can't give it to Hespa because I also don't think that that was necessarily her choice to make. And I don't particularly like the choosing of what consent can be. So it's pretty much Martin or Tempe because they said, ah. <laughs> That's fair. I don't really have a whole lot to add to that. I think we've covered that pretty well. Yeah. They were only in it very briefly. There's not a lot of wisdom here. And honestly, I I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of Fernemo sing happening from here until the end of the section. Perfectly fair. So uh, with that, it's my turn for the thing of the week. So one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about of late is looking for ways to show how much you love the people in your life. And it looks different for different people and in different situations. And I think it's worth remembering that people don't always recognize your acts of love in the same way that you intend them. And I think it is worth pointing those out to people so that they can see those for what they are. Like for me, it comes from finding ways to reserve energy to cook dinner for us or to cook dinner with you. Like it also comes from when I take time to help you with projects around the house, often fighting my ADHD along the way. It happens when I take our cat to the emergency vet after a string swallowing incident. Yeah. You know, these are things that we do, you know, and it, and it happens when I give myself time to be vulnerable, to admit my fears, my insecurities, my doubts. And it happens when we look beyond our weaknesses to see our partner's hearts, that we're not just a collection of mental illnesses and character flaws. I mean, you're especially good at that. And it's inspiring to me. Like, it's something that's important. And this is all kinds of love, whether it is romantic or familial or a friend. I actually got to see a really cute way that you express your love for your friends yesterday. So lately, you've been more and more excited about your vinyl, hunting for new and amazing albums, setting up your system in your room in ways that make you happy, that allow you to have some downtime, some relaxed time, and to build a hobby that I think is really just lovely to see in you. And by encouraging your friend to get his own vinyl setup or encouraging me to get my own for my room, you're sharing a love of something that brings you joy with another person. And yeah, sometimes you're a little bit like, you've got to do this. Like, you, you really, you should do this. You ought to do this. And it sounds a little bit like, you have to do this as almost a command. I know it's not about that. I know what it is, is I want to share this amazing thing that I love about what I'm doing with you because I want more people to talk to about this and I want more people to enjoy this with me. And I think that that's really sweet. It's like, I found this amazing thing that makes me so happy. I want you to be happy just like I am. I want to share this with you. It's important. Like when you're doing those little things that you do for people that you love, they don't always recognize them as such. So it is important to let them know where it's coming from, that you know it matters. However you are showing love to the people you care about is good and valid. And there isn't 
like there is one way that is superior to all others or anything like that at all it is these are all valuable and they should be respected and you know admired and i i really take all of this very seriously and it's not always easy but it is worthwhile i've been excited to share that one with you yeah but i i think that that's a great great thing to remind each other that you know we don't live in each other's heads and we can't see what other people think about how often we think of each other how often we do things specifically for the other person's benefit i think that along with this a huge thing is communication exactly the other person doesn't live in your head they don't necessarily see the energy that you're putting into it because they can't see your brain working they don't necessarily see what's happening in your mind as you do these things so let them know tell them let them know that you're doing these things because you care because you want to do something for them it's important to remember again that we're all complex people and we're more than just the sum of our weirdsies and neuroses and mental illnesses and flaws we're people with value all of us and we're not who we are on our worst day you know we all have bad days those aren't the sum total of us even as sometimes on our darker days that may be all we can see about ourselves yeah i spent a lot of time yesterday telling you that the negative parts of your brain needed to stufu yeah i needed that and i appreciated it so much and i want you to remember that it's that kind of compassion that i see when i look at you i don't see the anxiety the fear the trauma the all the stuff that we've gone through together i see this person who is reminding me to be graceful to myself and i want you to have that same grace for yourself i love you i love you too we are currently in the process of making our entire audience vomit i don't care <laughs> If that makes them vomit, so be it. Please have your buckets at the ready. So that, uh, let's go ahead and move into seven words. I had seven words from the book, of which there were many choices. Not sure any of them were good. Uh, my, <laughs> my book is full of green highlighter. Yeah, mine too. I had lots of them. I mean, I'm just going to flip through this and you're just going to see more green than yellow. This time around yellow is what i do to mark what i want to talk about green is me marking the seven words that i find i don't really know which one i like i'll help you choose so here's what i've got the sound of her voice was strange i looked back again at my companions Dedan's hands made fists at his sides i was one of the edema rue her long hair trails across my skin our rhythm is like a silent song. I am taut as a lute string. I remembered the touch of those lips. What manner of madness did they exhibit? The summer dusk was in her eyes, her lips the shade of sunset skies. You looked like a poet, fiery and fair. Poets are gentler, they say nice things. And you kiss me like a candle flame. Yeah, there's also one that I think might be important to share, but not necessarily a good one to choose yeah i have met her equal only once i think that one's one to put a pin in mostly because we see how absolutely 
infatuated with Dena Kvoth is. If, in fact, he is referring to Dena. There's also, you play her songs of ordinary people, which I think doesn't make sense out of context. In the thanks I hate it category, I was powerless, I was a novelty, and I nursed my small flame of anger. Maybe one I like better is I saw the ever-changing wind itself. And we'll have to just ignore the idea that a hyphen makes a compound word. I think that's probably the best we can get. So yeah, we'll choose I saw the ever-changing wind itself. You had words from life. What did you choose? That sounds like a very good plan. Aw. So you and I go through weekends, especially right now while we're preparing for Will's parents to come visit us for the first time ever in our new house and the first time in like years of them actually coming out to visit us. And we have to do a lot of house projects like every weekend. Like we put up a mural wallpaper in Will's room. We've put up shelves in my room. We've put things together at a more rapid pace than maybe we would have otherwise. And so we always set out on the weekends with plans of what we want to get done. And they're always overambitious. We have knocked these things down to reasonable levels multiple times. That's fine. I don't care. But we set out with what we think our day is going to look like. And then every once in a while, we'll readjust in the middle of the day. And so today... My readjustment after we got going a little bit late and after we wound up with a intensive section of the book to discuss with y'all, I changed what we were going to do for food for the day. And I know that that's not normal for people to have to like have these discussions about what lunch will be and what, you know, dinner will be and what you can prepare your spell slots for. But we kind of have to do that sometimes when we have a lot of stuff to do. And I am staring at a lot of stuff we still have to do. And I'm like, okay, so how about this? How about we knock down our expectations today to this instead of the whole list that we had? And you came back to me with, that sounds like a very good plan. Well, I'm glad that that made a lot of sense to you. Well, that I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover Chapter 98 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of relational parody. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you'd like to help support us and have the means to do so or would like a free trial, please, you can... Go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod and listen to things that we have talked about with Sandman, some really, 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 really old pods talking about some of Patrick Rothfuss's other work, some weird little game show-esque theory crafty stuff, all that stuff. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding!
Why was that? Why? Why? What do you mean, why? Why are you Why are you doing that? Why are you making that noise? Because it was fun. It was weird, and I'm a weird person. You are. Lucky for you, I love that in a person. I know, right? I thank my lucky stars for that every day. 